what happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both our guests and our listeners will find value in them. And selfishly, I know I will too. Welcome back to this episode of Lean In with Dr. Jabron Pasha. I'm Jabron Pasha, and I am here with a colleague and friend and someone that I admire and have learned a lot from over the five, six years that we've been working together now. I'm here with Dr. Saisha Dennis, who is an assistant dean for equity and community engagement and also a family medicine physician. She got her medical degree from Loyola, has a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins, and it's just a just an overall impressive individual. So, Dr. Dennis, thanks so much for spending some time with us here today. Well, thank you for the kind introduction. And yeah, I, I would definitely say the same. I, I think uh learned a lot and from your work and your career and all the things you've been doing in the community. And so mutual respect and admiration. Uh, thank you. You know, we, we've done a lot. We work a lot together on a lot of things. And, and it generally has to to do with equity and, and health disparities related things. And, you know, everybody has their own story of how they get involved in this work. I don't know that I actually know what pushed you to be so active in the ways that you are in this work. What is it? Was there a something that happened? Is it just an, an accumulation of, of experiences what what got you involved in in all of the stuff that you're involved in? Yeah, I think I would I would put it more in the accumulation of experiences category. I am a first generation college student. I grew up here in Oklahoma in Oklahoma City and I kind of always knew I wanted to be a physician. That was a goal really early on. My grandmother worked in hospitals. My mom was a medical transcriptionist. And so I was kind of around hospitals. I saw doctors. I was like, oh, that's really cool. You know, looks like a fun thing to do. And, you know, I would say both of my parents to a certain extent were involved in civil rights and trying to advance the positions that Black people held in this country. And I grew up reading and really understanding a lot about our history and how we got to this place and our current circumstances. And so I always knew that I would be doing work to help people in my community. I thought that um, early on that I would just do that in the clinic. You know, I would take care of patients. I would write prescriptions for diabetes and hypertension. And, and that would be my path. When I finished school, I finished uh, my residency in family medicine, I came back to Oklahoma, to Tulsa. I actually had never been to Tulsa, you know, all the time that I grew up in Oklahoma. We just never went, came this way. And so the first time that I came to Tulsa was when I interviewed at uh, Morton, which is a community health center in North Tulsa. And it was my kind of first experience really working at a community health center here in Tulsa or in Oklahoma and really seeing some of the specific conditions and health disparities that were impacting people from African, the African-American community, from 
Latino community and really white people too, you know, because it was a clinic for people who were underinsured, underinsured or uninsured. And so I saw all the disparities really impacting Oklahomans as a whole. And as I began to hone my craft as a family doctor, I began to see the limits of what you can do with just education, with just counseling patients about making specific changes about diet and exercise or writing a prescription when they came up with a particular disease. And I began to think about how can I do this work on a larger level, at a, at a population health level, at a community level, even beyond what I could do in the clinic. So I got my MPH. That helped me to understand better the context of some of the problems that I was seeing. And I went into medical education, and that has helped me to really have the time to really focus on some of those foundational issues that impact the health of people in Tulsa, people in the community, and how to make those changes, how to impact those population-level health determinants. You know, you said something that makes so much sense to me, but I've never put it into words, and that has to do with the limitations of clinical practice, especially for individuals like yourself and, and me who really have a, we, we, we tend to try to fight for people and, and, and the disparities we face, we see that people of color face. There's just such a limit to what you can do clinically, right? And I had the same goals as, as you did. I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to advocate for my patients. But I think you quickly get frustrated by the limitations that you have as just one person, right? And so trying to find ways to amplify that mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. is key. And I think advocacy and, and all of the efforts that you have taken on provide a way to amplify that, that you just can't get from just seeing patients. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, I think that's what's so great. I mean, because, you know, you can do this work in many different arenas um, in healthcare, but I think the fun thing about medical education is that I get to kind of translate some of those barriers for medical students and residents so that hopefully they see the bigger picture, right? And so they don't end up with that high level of frustration that I think I felt probably two or three years into my family medicine practice is like, oh, you know, there's just certain things that aren't changing, right? And if the patients aren't coming into the clinic, I don't, I don't even get a chance to impact them. And so really recognizing those barriers outside of the clinic space. And I, I remember, and I, this was kind of a moment for me, one of my former residents, she said, and we practice in a clinic, patients who are underinsured, high levels of, you know, negative social determinants impacting their life. She's like, oh, I can't wait to graduate. So I'll get to work with patients who actually listen to me. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, you know, I, in that moment, I felt like in some ways we had failed her, right? Because she felt that it was her fault or there was something wrong with either her or her practice or the patient that this patient or these things weren't changing, when really there's a whole world, a whole, you know, larger piece of the pie that is making the, the, those uh, disease levels high. Those, the patients really can't focus on their health in clinics like ours as much as they would in a, a practice where 
People have a sufficient income to feed themselves and their family, to pay their bills. They have parks and can pay for a gym membership and have green spaces to, you know, help keep their mood elevated, right? All these different things that our patients are kind of experiencing within their communities, they're bringing that to the clinic. And in turn, that is impacting the clinician that is in front of them trying to do their best to get this patient healthy. And it can be just a cycle of feeling like you're not doing enough. And then, of course, we got the issue with burnout with physicians. And so that's one thing that I do appreciate about being in medical education is I, I get to hopefully make that lens a little bit wider for young physicians so that they can they can at least understand the context that the patient is coming into the clinic with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of the inequities that exist across communities, you know, there was some some research out of the School of Community Medicine in, in the early 2000s that was eye-opening for a lot of people having to do with zip codes and, and life expectancy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that came out, I think it was a, a couple of decades ago, this kind of research really looking at the health disparities that existed between North and South Tulsa. And at the time, they saw that there was a 15-year life expectancy gap that existed between those who lived in particular zip codes in North Tulsa and those that lived in zip codes in South Tulsa, right? And through that work, fortunately, came a lot of effort to figure out what can we do to address these disparities, right? Because why should someone who lives in one part of town live 15 years longer than someone who lives, just lives, you know, literally probably four or five miles away, (laughs) you know, a lot of, you know, and just conceptually, that doesn't make any sense, right? We should have access to, you know, very similar resources, right? Tulsa is not a big city, but something, you know, is happening or was happening that was creating this differential and to really study what what was happening there, right? So to look at access to healthcare, get uh, community resources, what could be done to kind of impact those determinants of health so that we could eliminate the gap, which is the ultimate goal. And I believe that probably about five years ago, they restudied and the gap had shrunk to 11 years. And this, you know, I think that has a lot to do with some of the work that has been done. The, you know, the medical schools have been really engaged in placing clinics uh, strategically in certain parts of the community, bringing different specialty care, community resources have really been, you know, meaning money and interest and people resources have been poured into kind of trying to decrease that gap. But even with that intensity of focus, that gap has only shrunk to 11, which is still a huge gap. And I think that speaks to some of the, what we call structural determinants of health. So some of those policies, the biases that work against people who live in these zip codes that are actually a lot more difficult to change as opposed to just putting a clinic in a space or putting a grocery store in a space? What are the policies? What are the institutional structures, the barriers that um, exist that are keeping these this, these life expectancy gaps so wide? Yeah. You know, I think there's a, what I would, I'd call it a very reasonable 
assumption that these disparities are the result of lack of access. And, and although it's a reasonable assumption, it's just not true. And I, and I think right. that's right. the message you're, you're putting out there, that there are systemic issues ingrained into our society that created and continue to create the disparities we see. And, you know, the, the life expectancy gap in Tulsa is really important to me because, you know, I'm from Tulsa, born and raised, just like you're from Oklahoma. This means something to you, but it's not it's not unique to Tulsa, right? It's it's they see very similar or if not greater disparities across zip codes and, you know, places like New Orleans or in yes. Detroit or in Chicago. And so a lot of people are dealing with these issues. And one thing I, I would say, there's not a whole lot of good things that have come out of the pandemic, but one, one silver lining is I think the the light that is now being shed on disparities and health disparities related issues. And and one of those that really was being well-recognized even before the pandemic is pro- and is probably the most well-recognized disparity is the disparities that, that lie in maternal health. Uh, I know as a family physician, you deliver a lot of babies, you take care of a lot of mamas of color. Um, talk to us a bit about what the research has shown in regards to those disparities. Yeah, I mean, a part of the reason why I'm a family physician is I, you know, I went to med school. I was exposed to a lot of different specialties and I knew I wanted to do primary care. But once it came down to it, I wanted to take care of all people, really, from from cradle to grave, you know, and everything that comes in between those two two spots. And so I I have continued to uh, take care of women who are pregnant and to deliver babies. Only about 20% of family doctors do that. So it's not too many of us out there, but we're a strong and mighty crew who continue to, to have that practice. And, you know, I trained in Chicago, as you mentioned before, and it was a, it was a very uh, urban community hospital that I trained in. And as family doctors, we were the main ones doing the deliveries. And and so I really got to see a lot of maternal morbidity. I saw the, the women who came in with preeclampsia and eclampsia, the postpartum hemorrhage, the impact of gestational diabetes, of substance use disorder that impacted the pregnancy and the baby. So I got to see a lot of maternal and morbidity during my training. And once I came here to Oklahoma, I would say I was a little bit more insulated from that high level of morbidity in my practice, because most of my patients, they come in and they see me regularly and we we monitor their health status very closely. And I work very closely with obstetric partners who, when my patients do develop high-risk conditions, they work with me to, to take care of any issues they have. But I am fully aware that even here in Oklahoma, we have a, just, just in terms of same as life expectancy, we have a gap between the risk that a woman who is Black or is identifies as Black versus someone who identifies as white, the risk that they take on when they become pregnant. And yes, in with COVID, health disparities have really been highlighted. But I would say over probably the last five to 10 years, that gap between maternal morbidity for Black women, for Native women, has been really in the spotlight because it's been so stubborn. I remember hearing about it when I was in med school. There was a gap. Black women were more likely to die in pregnancy than white women. And nobody could explain why. It was just one of those things. They just laid it out. And there were studies after studies and and nobody could really figure out. There's no biologic basis to race, right? We understand that. But what 
what was happening to make this so pers- persistent. And I think one of the, the statistics that really brings this home for me is that a, a Black woman who graduates from college or even gets a, a graduate degree has the same risk of maternal morbidity and mortality during her pregnancy as a person, as a white person or white woman who got a high school education. And we often think that education, that income is a huge, is the protective factor for health, but that is not the case for Black women during their pregnancy. You know, one of the um, very sad cases that does an incredible job of highlighting what you just mentioned about education is the case uh, of a, a Black woman named Dr. Shalon Irving. And <laughs> several years ago, you know, she was a first-time mother. And in addition to being a first-time mother, this is a woman who I believe graduated high school at age 16, got an undergraduate degree, got a master's in public health, the same place you got yours, actually, uh, Johns Hopkins, got a dual PhD uh, in sociology and gerontology, and literally worked at the CDC on health disparities. And I know you're very, very aware of, of uh, Dr. Irving's case, the the short of the long is that she was unable to advocate for herself and ended up being another black woman who who died from pregnancy related issues that that were in review absolutely avoidable. Yeah, I mean, and there are so many, too many stories like Dr. Irvin. Just recently, uh, Dr. Shanice Wallace, who was a pediatric resident also died due to postpartum complications um, of her pregnancy. And, you know, we could, we could name so many stories that have been public, but also those non-public stories. I think Dr. highlights some of the kind of entrenched barriers to maternal health for Black women. You have a high achieving person who got a great education, who actually studies disparities, who is still, at the end of the day, a Black woman in this society. Nothing that she could have done would change that fact. And so no matter what, however, to the medical system, to healthcare clinicians or providers who were taking care of her, um, she was still going to face whatever implicit, explicit, underlying biases that it exists to having her story be heard, right? And what can we do? And I think that's a part of what you're doing, you know, training and discussing implicit bias. How can we create a structure, structures and places, safe places within healthcare systems where everyone feels like their voice is heard, that their concerns are heard? And I think that is the work, I guess. I hate to always simplify that. I say that so much these days, but that's the work that has to be done, right? Because, you know, no one, when they hear her story, no, most Black women, when they hear that story, it may not have be related to their pregnancy, but a lot of people can relate to that feeling, that feeling like, oh, I feel something is wrong. I, something is going on in my body, but I'm not being listened to, right? And, and whether that be this, their personal story or the story of a family member that they were taking care of, these stories are repeated all too often within our healthcare universe, right? Yeah, and, it, and it's not just anecdotal 
stories, right? I mean, the, the 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 research supports that you know people of color, especially women of color, as we as we you know relate to maternal morbidity and mortality, they're they're much more likely to have their concerns dismissed or, or ignored. We know that people of color um, as patients are a lot less likely to have a physician that actually reaches out and touches them or, or makes eye contact with them. And, and you can you can imagine for those of you who are listening, what that would do to the that therapeutic bond that needs to exist between a patient and a healthcare provider, right? To to produce the best outcomes possible, right? So this isn't just, you know, stories that people are putting forward. These stories are confirmed by research. And and I think Dr. Dennis is, is absolutely right. We have to begin to address these disparities with more than just access to care, right? Or what happens at the bedside, right? This stuff has to, we have to get way upstream mm-hmm. to, to really make a difference. Yeah. And I think it's important to to talk about, you know, because we do have studies. A lot of times, I think you're right in the sense that we think that this is anecdotal. We have a patient that says, oh, or they may say, oh, I'm not being heard. And it's like, oh, that's, you know, maybe you weren't telling the steroid story in the correct way. Um, but we have several studies that, like you said, there's less physical touch, that treatments, despite equal presentations to the healthcare system, treatments will be different. Clinicians who uh, don't share the same rate, racial background will spend less time with a patient who is who is of a different race in the room talking to them. And patients feel like their disease process or management is less explained when you have these discordant race relationships. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of underlying things that are undergirding the fact that black women are are dying at a higher rate from pregnancy. And, and that is not even to speak of the weathering process, which, you know, I'm sure you've discussed and um, will continue to discuss that just happens even before we become pregnant. That, that kind of chronic stress that comes with being a minoritized person in the United States and that comes into every pregnancy and that physicians just have to recognize that that's a part of the underlying risk factor um, when these patients come to you and you have to have a higher level of suspicion with these patients that when they come and they say, hey, I'm, I'm, I've got swelling. I've got shortness of breath. I don't feel right. You can't dismiss those patients. You have to to bring them in. You have to take a look and you have to take those concerns extra seriously because there is this underlying, those underlying structures, social issues that make that patient more at risk for complications during their pregnancy. And I think that people who take care of pregnant women are starting to realize, to recognize that attention, special attention has to be made to these populations. Like I said, we, we can't ignore this, the same statistics that um, are impacting Native women in this country too. And, and I think that we are just beginning to recognize that, that this is not just about giving the right medication or doing the same thing for every single patient. These patients need special attention. They need special care to make sure that we bring these numbers down. You know, when I decided to to do this podcast to start a podcast it really was was my goal was to raise awareness and and I'm I'm super aware of the limitations of just raising awareness right there there has to be people out there who are actually out there doing the work and 
for the people like you who are actually out there doing the work. You know, I'm out there doing the work as well, but just just know it's appreciated. And I know you're only one person. You probably do the work of three or four people, <laughs> um, but but your 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 efforts are are making a difference. And and so I want to thank you for that. Most importantly, and I also want to thank you for taking some time to to just have a, a discussion with me because I I know look I know how busy you are. Um, and so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join Lean In today to have these conversations. Well, thank you. Um, you're an awesome colleague and Tulsa's finest, as they would say, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you definitely have or have represented well for the needs and the voice of Tulsans. And really, I really appreciate um, you highlighting these specific issues and these topics to bring greater awareness and hopefully like you said, we get more people to join with us in in making a change. Thank you, Dr. Dennis. I appreciate you. Thank you. Let me know your thoughts about this episode. I'm easy to reach on Twitter at Jabron Pasha, on Instagram at What Medicine Did, and on UnlockingImplicitBias.com. Thanks for leaning in with me.